Welcome back, everybody, to the Pack Out Podcast. Uh, so today we're recording. It's August 16th. You'll be hearing this in a few days, but in uh, 30 days, and I know people might be tired of hearing about this, Aaron, because we've been talking about elk since this whole thing started back in March, but uh, in 30 days, the trucks will be west, and let's see, by the 16th, I'm hoping we're in like North Dakota by right, right about now, so it's coming up quick. Yeah, for sure. I think by the 16th, we'll actually be in Idaho. Um, hopefully either sitting on a hillside, glassing something, calling something or sitting at the truck. So either way, um, I leave in one month minus one day and you leave in a month. So I don't care if they're tired of hearing about it. I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I know we both kind of had some bow difficulties. So we're, we're both, uh, I think we're both getting to the end of that. I know this past, um, weekend I had to do a little bit of broadhead tuning and then this morning I started working on my tape. Um, so hopefully within within the next few days here, I'll have that done and I can get back into shooting a little bit of 3D this next month or so. But where are you kind of sitting right now with your with your bow setup? Uh, bow's good now. Um, I shot it last week and I was grouping fine, but then I shot my broadhead and I was low. I was like, okay, so I dropped my rest and I was low. I dropped my rest and I was low. And as you know, I'm I'm... I've got my notch sitting a quarter inch higher than my, my shaft at the rest and it's still hitting four inches low. So I took it to a buddy. He's got a bow shop in uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania. So if you're in that area, uh, look him up. It's Smith's archery. Um, his pro shop is in a horse barn. So just fair warning. Um, but he, he knows what he's doing. He's got all the stuff there. Uh, we got my bow back in time. The top cam was like, three eighths of an inch behind the bottom cam. So basically the bottom cam was working faster than the top cam pulling that arrow down. Um, got it in time, a couple of clicks on the rest and we had it going. So right now I'm going through some broadhead tuning, doing a couple of clicks. Um, nothing crazy though. So I think I should be done with that in the next day or two, depending on the weather. And then I'll start working on my tapes and, to start shooting as much as I can in the backyard and at the, at the local range. So we're close. Yeah. Tuning can be kind of a finicky thing. I know I had more issues come up this year than I have in a long time, but it's nice when everything finally comes back together and things are hitting where they should. Broadheads are hitting with field points. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Your, your current issue though, is that you might want to buy stock and nocturnal the way that you go through knocks apparently. Yeah, I just bought a I just bought some new ones and I'm down four. So the last one was my fault. I just forgot to adjust adjust the sight and sailed over the target. So that one's on me, but oh well. I have another two packs coming, so we'll get them replaced and keep at it. But with uh getting to Montana here in the next month or so, um, especially where we hunt in Montana, and I think even you being in Idaho, Aaron, uh, you know, the, the range of grizzly bears is always kind of expanding. Uh, that's always something that's kind of on the forefront of my mind. Uh, and not that it, you know, scared probably isn't the right word. It's something that I'm, I'm aware of, you know? Um, so this week, uh, I'm excited. We have Jake Jordan on, uh, and he's going to talk, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, hunting in grizzly country. Uh, and he's really a gun guy. So, um, Jake, why don't you just kind of maybe give a little background on yourself, uh, kind of what you're doing now, how you got into hunting and, and uh, the like. Yeah. Thanks Cody. I just want to start out by, uh, thanking you and Aaron for having me on the podcast. 
Um, you know, real quick, just a quick background. I grew up hunting and backpacking in Montana. Um, and when I was, uh, after I graduated high school, I did four years in the Marine Corps, two tours in Iraq. For some reason, I just couldn't get enough. So I went back into government security contracting and actually spent another 11 years um, in the overseas and private industry. Um, and then, you know, I was usually working two months on, two months off during that time. So that afforded me time to maximize my hunting opportunities in the lower 48. Uh, I've hunted in Alaska and New Zealand. So uh, after that, I started JJ Outdoors uh, about two years ago as a side gig uh, where I teach uh, rifle instruction, mainly geared towards hunters, as well as handgun defense, both personal defense and against bears. Uh, I got my guide license a couple of years ago as well, so I guide deer and elk hunters in the fall. And right now I currently work for Fish Hunt Fight Gear, uh, which is a subsidiary of Meat Eater. And I've been doing that for the last couple months. So I live here in Bozeman, Montana with my wife and daughter. And, and we actually have another one on the way in January. So, And a native, uh, is it Mon- Montanan? What do they say out there? Native Montanan. Yep, that's correct. All right. So that's kind of been your, your backyard uh, growing up. Um, have you always kind of uh, deer and elk? What's What's kind of been your game? You know, deer, oak, and antelope, uh, as a resident, it's really easy to get um, uh, general tags for, for all three of those species. Generally, you have to put in for antelope, but it used to be kind of a 100% draw deal. So, yeah. Uh, and then got into turkeys probably in middle school, kind of early high school. So, um, yeah, those those four in particular. So. Um, how much time in the fall are you, are you usually spending in grizzly country? Uh, typically the brunt of your time in grizzly country is going to be in archery season. So it's going to be kind of that September to maybe early mid October, you know, while they're getting ready to hibernate in November. And, uh, so I'd say probably half the fall, uh, a third to a half of the fall and spending in grizzly country, but most of that is is within the archery season in September, and I'm usually out about half the month of September archery hunting. That's not a bad deal. It's never enough, but if you can get 15 or so out of the 30, that's that's not bad. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and archery season really seems to be um, kind of the most dangerous time for hunters because... You're dressed in camo, you're, you're masking your scent as best you can. You're trying to be quiet. You sound like an elk or you're attempting to sound like an elk and, and, you know, bears are out trying to get ready for, for that hibernation phase. And, and that can usually be the most dangerous time. So with that, you know, like you said, we're, we're dressed in camo, we're, we're being quiet, we're imitating cows and calves and the like, what are, I guess, what are some kind of like basic precautions or, or things that people can keep in mind, uh, to kind of help and avoid, you know, encounters? Yes. Honestly, the best way to avoid encounters with a grizzly bear is staying out of the areas that they hang out in. And unfortunately for a lot of us, that's not realistic, uh, especially as hunters and archery hunters too. Um, it's not really, not really realistic for, for us to stay outside of where bears hang out. So. Um, it's important to keep in mind too that 
that attacks are rare and in fact encounters are extremely rare and even most encounters themselves are peaceful so uh, it's definitely important to keep that in the back of your mind if you are hanging out in grizzly country but first and foremost is just to avoid the places that bears like to hang out that's always kind of my thing and i don't i guess i don't know if it's a good way to look at it but i'm always kind of in the back of my mind i'm like there's a higher likelihood that I'm going to get in a, in an accident or something going out to Montana than I'm, than something bad is going to happen with a bear. Um, sure. You know, I don't know, not, I don't want to give myself a false sense of security either, but like you said, it's a pretty rare thing. So I just try to kind of keep it in perspective too. That doesn't really help anything when you have to wake up at 3am to take a piss and you hear a stick pop either though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. It could be pretty unsettling. So when you say that, uh, most encounters are peaceful, what do you mean by that? Like, just like you see the bear, they see you and that's it. And they just go about their day. Yeah. I think most of the time, um, I guess it depends on what you would define an encounter as I would define an encounter as actually coming onto a bear and seeing one. Um, and either he's aware, he or she is aware that I'm there or they're not aware that I'm there, but I'm aware that they are there. And, uh, that has happened only twice in all the time that I've spent, um, out in, out hunting and backpacking in Montana, where I've actually come across a grizzly bear that I've physically seen. And, uh, in one case, the bear had no idea that I was there. I was able to back out quietly and, um, leave the area. And in the second instance, I actually, uh, made eye contact with the bear and, and came up with the same result where I was able to, to kind of put my hands up and talk calmly and, and just leave the area. So, um, and in the second case, this was before I got in deeply into handguns and bear spray. I was in high school. So, I uh, was very unprepared for, for bear country in that particular case. So it's been a while since you've had a, a grizzly encounter, knock on it wood, has. obviously. It has. So, um, and I don't do a lot of, if any, backcountry hunting a lot of the time. Um, a lot of my hunting is is front country where you could still, you know, it's from the truck all day and then back to the truck in the evening, but it's still in country where you could easily encounter grizzly bears. You know, it doesn't take very much to be, quote unquote, in the backcountry in Montana, you know. Um, so I'm typically not sleeping out like uh, under the stars in a tent and stuff like that in in the true backcountry, you know where bears probably don't have as many encounters with humans. But um, in in those particular cases, it's it's you're not any more likely to run into grizzly bears in backcountry settings than you are in a front country setting. I guess is where I was going with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, anymore it seems like they can be pretty much anywhere. So, um, yeah. And I don't know, it is just like a different feel hunting like from the truck versus sleeping out there. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to explain, I guess, but not that it's any different. Cause like I said, they're kind of everywhere, but it is just a little different it. feel. And you know, if you're backcountry hunting where you're spending multiple days in one location, you are increasing the odds of running into a bear. You know, when you've got a set camp that you're cooking in, that you've got food in that, you know, what have you. So, um, in backcountry settings, it's a lot more important to keep a clean camp, you know, especially if you've killed an animal, you've harvested an animal and you've cut it up and you've got blood all over your clothes and you've got blood all over your hands. And, 
you know, it's, it's way more important in those settings if you're sleeping in the backcountry to get all the meat and those bloody clothes out of camp and away from camp and clean yourself up so that, you know, you don't have a nighttime encounter with a bear. That part does seem a little unnerving. That's where it might be like, ah, the truck's not really that far away. <laughs> sure, sure. Yep. And, you know, in a lot of the cases I've been in, in pretty heavily infested grizz country, and have killed something, uh, you know, close to sundown. And I find myself cutting up meat by myself under a headlamp. Um, there's a few precautions I've taken in terms of, there's a few different opinions on, on what bears respond to. One is that they're going to be scared of noise. The other is that they're going to be attracted to noise. Um, I tend to go with the former. And uh, if, and I've been in the situation a couple of times cutting up an elk or a deer in the middle of the night uh, in grizz country. And I'll typically play music on my iPhone as loud as I possibly can and pick my head up every 20 to 30 seconds while I'm cutting the animal up and do the best I can to just kind of be aware of my surroundings. So, yeah, I, the first deer that I killed in, in Pennsylvania, Oh, I guess the first one that I killed miles from the truck in Pennsylvania, I was in pretty heavy black bear country. And I did the same thing. I played music and I looked around and then as I'm cutting up the deer playing music, I had the thought in my head, like, should I be actually listening closer or does the music act as a deterrent more than I think it does? And I'm of the opinion that, you know, bears don't like Johnny Cash. So if I'm, if I'm blaring that, then, uh, you know, uh, they may not be coming into my workspace, but uh, I can guarantee you when you've got an elk on the ground, that's taking you three to four hours to cut up and maybe you've got to make a couple trips, you know, it can be really dangerous, obviously coming back to a kill that's been laying there for a few hours because bears have an incredible sense of smell. And if they're in the area, they're going to be smelling the blood and the meat, you know? So, um, it's for me, it, it makes more sense to try to create as much noise to make that bear think it's a bad idea to come in as opposed to being as quiet as possible where they may not think anything's going on. It's just a dead animal. Right. Right. Do you ever build a fire? I've heard, I've heard of guys doing that too in non extreme drought years. That is. You bet. You bet. Um, building a big fire is a great idea, you know, just to create maybe something that's going to flash blind a bear, you know, and make them a little more, um, hesitant to come in. So, um, and, uh, but, you know, if it's a time-sensitive thing where I'm trying to get the animal taken care of and get out of there, you know, it takes time to make a fire. It takes time to continue to, to keep the fire going, and um, that's time that I could have that animal processed and out of the field. So, uh, Yeah, that's, that's a good on point. The, yeah, that's on the individual for sure. Um, I'd rather devote my time and energy to just getting out of there if I can. Yeah, for sure. So say, so say you have an out down you're cutting it up. You've got meat in the bags. Do you move the meat before you start taking parts out then? Say that one more time. I'm sorry. So you have like the the quarters in bags and stuff like that in meat bags. Do you move all the meat bags a couple hundred yards away from the kill site before you start taking meat out? Or are you just focused on getting the meat out of there as quick as possible? Yeah. I'll generally offset the quarters from the animal itself. uh, Maybe a couple hundred yards. And then I'll pack what I can in the first trip and then pack what I can in the second trip is usually how I'll tackle that one. That way, 
Um, if a bear does come in, hopefully he's attracted to the carcass and not the game bags. So, so the animals tend to go towards, you know, the abdomen organs as it is anyways. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thing that's really kind of unsettling too is bears, they're typically attacking you out of aggression because they see a threat to themselves or, or food that they need for hibernation. So, you know, if you can create distance between what they want and what you need, uh, you're just increasing, uh, or excuse me, you're decreasing the chances of an encounter. If you, uh, like say you kill an elk in a drainage or something, you, you know, you get the meat shuttled in or shuttled to the truck and not necessarily, I guess, like when you're hunting solo, but if you're hunting with someone, is that drainage like kind of off limits for X, you know, X period of time or what are kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, that's a, if you're going back into an area where you know you've killed something, I've usually got it marked. So I'll know to just, when we're getting into that specific area, we'll be keeping a really close eye on where we're at. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but typically, I'm hunting by myself. So, um, once I kill something and move out of that area, I'm typically not going back. So, uh, but to answer your question further, there have been times for sure that I've hunted with other people back in the same area that we know elk tend to like to hang out and we just drop a pin and make sure we keep a close eye on that area. If we're heading back in there. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, like in that scenario, at least, you know, it's there that I guess that is one thing that I'm always kind of like a little on edge about hunting in grizzly country is rolling up on a carcass like that, that you don't know is there, you know, at least there, like you said, you have it marked, you kind of know the wind, you can, you can use some of that stuff to your advantage, but, uh, in elk season, yeah, it's always like, man, if you roll up on the wrong, the wrong carcass at the wrong time or something, you know? Sure. Sure. And you know, in those backcountry settings where people are a lot more sparsely populated, if they are back there, um, man, you'd have to have some really bad luck, um, to be rolling up. Not only are encounters rare, but to be rolling up on something else that a hunter killed in that area with a bear already on it, because typically bears make really quick work of whatever they find. So, um, it would still be, be rare to, to come across a bear that's on a kill in that particular case in a backcountry setting where it's sparsely populated. Yeah, that's a good point too. Cause like you said, people are kind of spread out. So kind of that yeah, needle yeah. in the haystack, I guess, which probably need to keep totally. that in perspective too. makes you feel a little better. <laughs> yep. Yep. Totally. And it's usually not just the bear that's feeding on it. You've got every creature of the forest going after it. So they usually get taken care of pretty quick. You know, um, I have been in situations where somebody killed an elk in an area. Um, and I was, they told me about it and I went in there the next week and, um, that carcass was, was just skin and bones even after just one week. So, um, there wasn't anything left of it. Yeah. I can't imagine anything lasts long out there with all the, all the scavengers that I could see where it'd be pretty quick work for, for multiple reasons. For sure. Yep. And, you know, as far as kind of, uh, awareness, I have, I do have quite a few friends that horseback hunt. Um, they take mules and horses into backcountry settings and, um, that's just an extra kind of an additional alert for them in camp 
at night or when they're cutting something up is just having it, <laughs> especially mules. Uh, they'll pick up on on a bear on bear presence real quick and let you know that something's coming in. So just by smell, I assume. Yeah, I think just by hearing it, seeing it, smelling it, especially at night, I think it's their sense of smell um, that kind of gives it away. So, Cody, man, pack a mule. You, you've got spray. <laughs> you've got a gun. Just, just take that trailer we took last time. Just throw a mule in there. I'm trying to get away from having to pull the trailer up the mountain again. <laughs> I have heard um, Mark Livesay talk about that before, though. How his llamas will like alarm bark and stuff and and that's what he said it's almost like a like this little alarm system in camp or when we're cutting up meat yeah yeah i've actually heard llamas are are much better than horses and mules at alarming so yeah i've never heard a llama bark before that'd be kind of interesting that would be <laughs> neither have <laughs> i yeah um i Something that just kind of came to mind. What about like um, bare fences in camp? Do you do you have any experience? Do you know much about them? I've never used them. I know some guys swear by them. I personally don't know. I am aware that backcountry hunters use electric fences. Sure. Um, I've I personally never used them, and I don't know anybody uh, that that personally. I don't know anyone that uses them. So. It's always seemed like to me just an extra thing to carry and more things to worry about. I mean, I'm a complete novice, so I don't maybe they're the best thing in the world, but yeah, that's kind of kind of what I've thought of them. I think it's just one more thing that could go wrong to another piece of gear that's not functioning. And, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you bet. So, uh, or if but I, or if you bumped into it, there's that. You know, you know. true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know what the voltage is on those. <laughs> so Probably don't want to find out either. <laughs> that would be catastrophic. But um, yeah, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to to do your business and yeah, that wouldn't be very fun. So no, absolutely not. Um, maybe moving into encounters, Jake. Um, what's like you know, say say an encounter happens where. Maybe just, you know, to start, you've, you've seen the bear there within, you know, whatever proximity they haven't seen you. It sounds like just kind of quietly backing out and getting out of there is, is kind of best practice there. You bet. Yeah. You know, there's different schools of thought on it. Some are, um, make the bear aware of your presence. You know, um, I tend to go with the former, like you were saying, in terms of if the bear is unaware that I'm there. Um, I'm going to create as much distance as I can slowly while facing the bear. You know, I don't want to just turn and, and kind of quickly move out of the area because if the bear does see me, um, that could trigger some aggression. So, uh, I'd rather just back out of the area quietly and, uh, not say a word and then keep going in the opposite direction as long as I can until I get back to the truck or what have you. Yeah, it seems like if the bear's unaware of your presence and you have a quiet way of backing out, hollering at the bear to say, hey, bear, hey, bear, I'm here, that just seems like you're opening up a possible can of worms or more variables for that bear to react versus just, I'm going to jet. You bet. Yeah. If the bear has no idea I'm there, I'm going to do as little as possible in terms of alarming the bear to my presence, and I'm just going to leave the area quietly. You know, if the bear does know I'm there, um, I'm going to walk back slowly and I'm going to talk calmly 
um, just kind of hey bear, hey bear, so that, you know, hopefully the bear understands that I'm human. I'm not one of him. I'm not a threat. You know, I'm not a predator. Um, I don't want to turn my back and move out swiftly. I just want the bear to know that I'm there. I'm not a threat. And I'm going to back out the same way I would if he didn't know that I was there. And the thing that can be really dangerous too, if, if it's a boar, it's a little bit different than with a sow that may have cubs. Um, if there's a sow that's hanging out and she may have cubs stashed somewhere, you have no way of knowing what direction those cubs could be stashed. And if you get between her and her cubs, or maybe you come up, you come across her and you're in between them, there's a very good chance that, that she's going to charge you. So, um, that's another reason I'm usually not wanting to make a bear aware that I'm there if they don't know that I'm there. That's, That's a, really a great point. Great yeah, point. Yeah. 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 And, and sows are incredibly, they go mama bear real quick, you know, if, if there's cubs in the area. So I can certainly see that. Um, you mentioned a little bit about, um, a charge. Do you mind talking a little bit about like, a you know, kind of the difference in a bluff charge versus, you know, maybe something more along the lines of an actual charge and, and how you differentiate that? Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up too, because there's quite a few um, hikers and hunters that don't really understand what the difference is between the two, or that there is um, more than one type of charge. You know, a bluff charge is just meant to intimidate. So the bear is going to have a high profile. It's going to be hopping on its front legs, you know, and it's usually coming in big leaps. Um, there's not really any like rhythm to its pattern, so to speak. And if they feel threatened or you're kind of stressed them out, they may be woofing or popping their teeth. It's a very distinct sound that they'll be making. Um, very unnatural. Uh, and it's important to, to understand one that a bluff charge just means they're trying to intimidate you and they're typically going to change direction. And, uh, two is that if you are stressing them out, uh, it's important to know the sounds that they're making if they're getting ready to do an aggressive charge. So uh, an aggressive charge is is them lowering their profile and they're typically pinning their ears back and they're coming at you at full speed. Like there's no question that they're coming um, to reduce you as a threat. Yeah, those sound vastly different. One sounds like a lot of talk, not a whole lot of action. They're moving towards you, but doing it in an unrhythmic, boundful, slow fashion. And the other is just a furry minivan driving right up your ass. You bet. I mean, if we were in a bar, it would be the difference between somebody talking crap and somebody coming at you to do harm. Like <laughs> those are two very different things. So I was going to use the, that analogy, but I wasn't sure how that would work out, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Memories of the body. Blackstone for any Central Michigan drags. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, body language speaks volumes. So, um, and you know, one thing that's really terrifying about bears, I mean, there's a lot of things, but one of the biggest things is uh, how powerful they are. And if they do charge you in an aggressive manner because they see you as a threat, they can cover 50 yards in about three seconds or three and a half seconds. And they can run about 40 miles an hour. And since they're so powerful, they're usually almost at top speed as soon as they start moving at you. So terrifying it's, might it's be an freaky. understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they are the apex predator. I mean, it's 
it's incredible. I'm sure some of this depends on like, you know, obviously situations like you were mentioning and, and kind of the temperament of the bear. But, um, a lot of times with like a bluff charge and a, and a more aggressive charge, uh, do you tend to see some of that like bluff charge first and then things es- that, you know, they kind of escalate things or, or is it just usually right to that more aggressive, uh, charge depending on the situation? I think it totally depends on the situation. Um, when I spoke with the local biologist a few years ago regarding bears, cause I was trying to get more knowledge of, of how they operate. Um, he mentioned that, that bluff charges are something that can turn aggressive quickly. So that can be kind of the gray area where a bear is thinking about bluff charging, but then changes its mind into an aggressive charge. And that can be hard to identify versus a bear that you come across and he just, he or she immediately just gets aggressive and is coming after you, you know, and you usually only have a few seconds to really decide what's going on. So, um, but he had mentioned that a bluff charge is they're usually standing really tall in their profile. Their ears are up. And they'll change direction um, pretty quickly in their pace towards you because they're just kind of trying to warn you a little bit versus an aggressive charge where they've really got a low profile and their ears are pinned back. And it's pretty obvious that they're not slowing down. Almost that they're kind of curious look too. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and you don't know what kind of bear you're coming across. You could be coming across a bear that, that is fat and happy and doesn't care, you know, really so much that you're there you could be coming across a bear that's sick hasn't had a meal in a long time and and you know they're looking for one so you just you never know and typically a sick bear that's hungry is not going to bluff charge you (laughs) when they're in a weakened state so i think that's one of the things that kind of intrigues me about bears and like grizzly bears are super interesting to me i have a lot of respect for them and and like we talked about they're kind of terrifying but it's kind of interesting how they're you know, they're almost like people that way, you know, it just depends on the temperament. Uh, like you said, maybe they're sick. Maybe this bear's just an asshole, you know, <laughs> maybe that's, totally. that's just kind of how he lives his life. And and that's always intriguing. And like you said, you just never know kind of when that situation happens, what, what type of bear you're dealing with at the time. Yep, exactly. And every, every bear is different. Every situation is different. So, um, the best thing that we can do is just try to educate ourselves, um, as much as possible about bear behavior, where they hang out, you know, based on the time of year and what they may be looking for differences in charges and, and then understanding how to use the gear that we have on our body, whatever we may be carrying. That seems like a good segue to, you know, kind of go through, we'll, we'll segue this into how you then approach bluff charges, actual charges, or how, how you would approach a bluff charge. But so what do you carry back when you are in grizzly country hunting and how do you carry it, you know, on your hip, on your chest rig, that kind of thing? Yeah. So I'm most comfortable carrying my pistol on my hip belt and I have a removable attachment on my hip belt. Um, I'm running a rascal holster that can actually come off and then attach to my hip belt if I were to leave my pack. For some reason, you know, um, that way I can always have my handgun on me. And then I'm carrying a uh, bear spray underneath my bino harness kind of oriented outwards. That way I can deploy it from that position. I don't have to pull it out. So, uh, but I have both. Are you pretty much always carrying both? Yes. Yeah. I always have both on me and you know, I've heard 
of uh, hunters and hikers using like road flares as an additional defense against bears to essentially try and, and blind them. You know, they're loud and they're bright and it's something that a bear hasn't seen. Personally, I would never do that because we're already in drought conditions up here in Montana <laughs> and true. I would not want to potentially ditch a road flare <laughs> or a marine flare into the ground. You know, if a bear, it's just, you know, it's just going to make a situation worse. So it doesn't um, sound efficient. That sounds like a very slow process to pull a road flare off of your yeah. hip and then <laughs> yank the top off to light it. Yep. Exactly. And you know, the idea behind it is that it's, it's loud. It sounds like a 22 going off and they're incredibly bright, but I also don't want to blind myself either to what the bear is doing, you know? Um, so on my handgun, I've got a, a TLR seven, it's a 600 lumen light and it does have strobe capabilities. Now there's no science I have to back up how a bear would react to a strobe light, a big blinding light. But I do think that a bear that was thinking about attacking you maybe would think twice if it couldn't see, if you kind of flash blinded it with something that it hadn't seen before, um, like a big five or 600 lumen light. So I think yeah, that's a bright light as well. And I mean, I think about like, obviously, you know, varmints in, in your yard or something like that, or dogs or cats are completely different animals than, than a grizzly bear, but how do they act when you start shining a flashlight in their face? They sit there, oh, they kind of bob yeah. their head, they look around, they don't know what they're looking at, and then they, I don't know, they tend to walk away. I mean, it makes sense to me. I'm also not a grizzly bear biologist or know anything about that. So, Yeah, yeah. I think anytime they're losing one of their sensories, in this case sight, I think it makes them hesitant um, to approach whatever it is that's, that's doing that to them. So that's just my theory. Like I said, there's no science behind it. When I shine it at my hundred pound yellow lab, he drops his head and, and goes and hides in the corner. So, <laughs> um, but he's also not a 700 pound pissed off grizzly bear. So, but, uh, yeah, it's, I see it as a useful tool if I ever had had to use it. But, um, and again, bear spray versus pistol is, is situational for me. When we talked about coming across a bear that, that has no idea that you're there, or maybe a bear that is aware you're there and they kind of give you the leave now look, but they're not being an aggressive, I'll more than likely fall back on my bear spray in those particular cases. Um, because bear spray, uh, I like the idea that it's more of an area fire weapon than a handgun. I don't have to be as accurate. It's kind of the, the shotgun, if you will. I don't have to be as accurate with it as I do a handgun. Um, but it's also important to know the limitations of bear spray, which one is that you need to let it build. You need to spray it laterally and build a cloud. You need to make sure you're not shooting over the bear's head if he does charge you. And it's usually only effective to about 10 or 12 yards. So you need to let the bear get pretty dang close before bear spray can really do its job um, in the event that they charged. And if it's really windy, I'm not going for my bear spray at all. That's a good point. I'm just as likely to spray myself. Yeah. So what do you um, mean by spray it laterally? You mean like just wave it back and forth? 
Yeah, so if you think about kind of like a, a four to six degree cone, or excuse me, a four to six foot cone, so you would kind of want to spray laterally to spread it out and let it build. So you'd just be going back and forth laterally to widen it and then and deepen it. Um, from what I understand, again, speaking to professionals that actually test this stuff on bears, uh, such as the fishing game, they claim that a lot of the reasons that bear spray is ineffective is one, people using it don't let it build a good cloud, so it's ineffective, and two, they spray it over the top of a bear that's coming down and towards you. So typically you want to spray laterally and let that cloud build and widen so you're increasing the area that that bear could run into it. Yeah, those are good tips. And and it makes sense, like you said, you kind of want to build that cloud versus just the, you know, the, the quick spray and done, so... I think that's all totally. that's all good information and like something um actually from the video you did with clay uh clay newcomb i'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen it but um with the the pistol drills shooting you know kind of top to bottom a bear coming down on you that wasn't something and it makes so much sense but that wasn't something i really had thought about until that video so it kind of makes sense with spray too where you could actually go over the top when that bear is coming down yeah absolutely and you know terrain dictates too because it could be coming downhill at you and that makes it even more aggressive of an angle for the bear to kind of run underneath um uh, or uphill too but um, i think in our minds we all think of a, a bear charge happening in an open field on flat ground you know or on like a flat hiking trail or something like that but if we're archery hunting especially in the backcountry, it's typically not going to happen on favorable ground so um, and, uh, I, you know, the other thing that's important with bear spray is to make sure you're checking the expiration date. You know, they're typically only good for a year or two and you can empty a bear spray can in about five seconds. So timing is key too. If a bear is coming at you, you know, to, to make sure that you're not only building a cloud, but you're doing it effectively within a small time frame. Yeah. When you think about how how fast a bear moves. And like you said, how quickly that can empties. It's just, there's a lot going on in those five seconds to where you're standing there with an empty can. Now. Totally. Totally. And I know we said that a bear can cover 50 yards in three seconds, you know, but again, every situation is different. If you start laying on the trigger before it comes at you and you know, you, you could empty two thirds of that can without it being effective at all. And then the bear decides to charge you, you know? So yeah, absolutely. And then, then it's kind of um, like, now what? Totally. Um, and I don't ever carry more than one can on me. There's the really kind of unrealistic <laughs> to be, you know, Goran Arnold Schwarzenegger changing cans out, you know, just, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, but if, you know, if I come across a bear that, that is aware that I'm there and is immediately upset, with me being there and by upset, I mean like he turns, he or she turns aggressive, um, real quick. I'm going immediately to my handgun because it's quicker, uh, to deploy that than it is my bear spray in a lot of cases. So, and again, I do have that flashlight capability to, to strobe it and make it think that it's a bad idea to come after me. Is it also fair to say that you have more practice drawing your pistol than you do your bear spray? Very so like so. that, that might be an instinctual kind of thing there where regardless if you, and, and I'm curious, this is, I guess might be an open-ended question. 
but like even if you wanted to pull your bear spray a bear's charging at you I, i'd wonder if instincts take over and you draw your pistol yeah so like i said my bear spray is only coming out if that bear is aware that i'm there and it's not charging me because now i have the time to really place it where i need to or the time to set myself up in the event that they charge Whereas if I come across a bear that's that's immediately aggressive with me, I'm going straight to my handgun. So, um, and if I was going to make it black and white, I would say handgun's primary for me and bear spray's backup. So, uh, because I still have a tool on my handgun, like my strobe light, to make the bear think it's a bad idea, whether it's daylight or nighttime or what have you. So yeah, so you still have um, that non-lethal, more passive kind of option. You bet. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to have to shoot a grizzly bear. I think they're some cool animals, you know, but if I am put in that situation, I'm going to make that decision. Yeah, I have a feeling yeah. that there are a lot of people that they don't want to kill a bear for various reasons. Um, because I, one of what I, I think the shitstorm that follows would be pretty damn terrible to endure. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And I have heard of situations where individuals have had to shoot bears and either they wounded them or they killed them. Um, didn't really matter, but they, they kind of dropped a locator and they went out and they called the fishing game. And, and there's usually a pretty big investigation that has to be launched into what happened, you know? So, uh, and if you're going after a bear that's wounded, then it's 10 times as dangerous. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely once you make that decision, it's it's best to follow through with it as best you can. So, um, and it's also important to, you know, as with anything, you need to understand how to use the tools that you're taking into the woods. Um, you need to practice, and you need to understand how it all works together. You know, one thing when we were shooting with Clay Newcomb is we shot slick just the pistol in a holster on his belt, and then we built up to him wearing the pack and his vinyl harness and all that, you know, and that, that is going to, um, hamper, um, your efficiency with a handgun. So it's important to know how you shoot without that stuff as well as with it. So that, you know, if, if you do need to make a decision to take a bear's life, then you're more suited to do so. Jake, I want to, um, get into the pistol stuff here in just a second. I just want to go back to one thing that you mentioned about the body language, um, so when we're talking about like body language of a bear and a more aggressive stance, a more aggressive charge, what's like, what's kind of the first thing you're looking for? The first thing you're picking up on? I mean, is it the ears back? Is it, is it more posture? What's, what's kind of that first tip that, Hey, this, this probably isn't going to be a bluff charge. I would say the bear squaring himself with me. Okay. Kind of like a sprinter takes, takes a position on the blocks, you know, and you're the finish line. Like. Yeah, um, I would say that, that that would be probably the first thing that would make the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Yeah, that that's good information because kind of coming into this, that was, and we've I think we've covered it well, but that was kind of one of my things. So I, I did carry a pistol in Montana before. I'm going to carry a pistol again. Um, like I was mentioning before we started recording here, I bought a 10 millimeter a couple months ago, but I'm also going to carry bear spray. And kind of one of my questions was, how do I decide, you know, 
what, what I'm reaching for, when am I reaching for it? And what are some of the kind of clues that are, are cluing me into that? And I think you've done a really good job of, of kind of giving some tips and things to look for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and some people may suggest having both your bear spray and your pistol out at the same time. Um, I would argue against that just because that's going to lead to you using neither of them very effectively. I was going to say, how many people practice shooting a gun large enough to carry for a grizzly bear? And we'll get into caliber here in a little bit, but I can't imagine shooting a 10 millimeter one-handed and being effective. Right. right. I can't yep. imagine shooting bear spray left-handed and being effective. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Imagine unlocking wanna... it would be an issue. <laughs> yep. So I, you know, I've had a few hunters in the past tell me uh, that was the position that they chose to take, and I kind of, um, I kind of winced at that a little bit, just because I, from my tactical background, I, I know that I can't employ either of them effectively single-handed, like I can having one or the other. So. So you never double wield the pistols, you know, in a fighting situation there? No. Thought about it from time to time, but <laughs> maybe maybe a shotgun in one hand and a pistol in the other, but I'm getting zombie land now. We're getting back to Schwarzenegger now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I mean if I could carry a bazooka into bear country, maybe maybe that's what I'd opt for. Um you know, getting back into pistols, um, I don't think we can talk about pistols and bears without getting into calibers a little bit. Um, and that was something that I struggled with a little bit when I was kind of doing my research and, and, uh, and looking into things. And, and I think I mentioned this to you and we were kind of talking back and forth, but it just didn't seem like there was a lot of good information out there. There's a lot of opinions, but I never know how to take some of that because it's, you know, you don't know who it's coming from. You don't know what kind of expertise they have, have they had encounters? So, uh, what are kind of your thoughts on, on caliber? Does it matter? You know, is it more so how you handle the gun? What's your, what's your school of thought? Yeah. You know, Cody, the, the one thing that's always of interest to me, and it's the same with rifle calibers too, is I think bullet selection is more important than the caliber caliber debate, you know, up front. Um, I'm not sure that there's a lot of people aware that there are dedicated bear loads out there or bullets that are designed for bears as opposed to just your run of the mill kind of training ammo. So um, bullet selection is, is probably more important in, in this particular case. So uh, I'm typically running Buffalo bore hard cast plus P uh, bullets in my handgun uh, because they were specifically designed for bears or thick skin, dense bone, deep chested animals. So, so you'd even run like a nine mil or something like that. I do actually currently run a nine millimeter. Oh, I I don't. So currently I don't own a handgun yet, but a nine bills, a nine mil is on my radar and Cody knows this. I tend to try to get multiple uses out of one thing, whether it be the smartest decision or not. And knowing that that's pretty cool because I would be able to use it for, you know, a truck gun or taking it out West getting getting the right ammo for it but that makes a lot of sense as far as bullet selection being more important than caliber i like the rifle and uh the rifle um uh comparison that you made there yeah that's the word thank you (laughs) (laughs) you saw me searching the deep part of my brain for that one (laughs) i was actually sitting here thinking the same thing i'm like what word would i use Uh, yeah um 
but yeah, Aaron. So the other thing that's important too, when it comes to caliber and selecting a caliber is picking one that you're going to shoot enough at the range to become familiar with one that you're going to enjoy shooting enough that you're going to become proficient with it. So, um, you know, when, when we were working with clay and I had him do that drill where he's trying to get as many rounds out and I believe it was two and a half seconds as he could, he was routinely getting six plus rounds out of his nine mil. Whereas when we pulled the 44 mag out, he was getting one to two rounds, usually not more than one. Occasionally he was getting, getting one or two out, um, or excuse me, more than one. But, uh, you know, those extra rounds from the nine millimeter create more chances to catch a shoulder or catch an eye socket, uh, hit a more sensitive area and make the bear change direction. So, um, I don't think it's really about caliber and energy as much as it's about, uh, efficiency behind that platform and how well you can employ it in a small time frame. So, and nine millimeters are heavily underestimated because it's a slim profile round that's moving incredibly fast, especially if you do like a plus P like Buffalo more, Buffalo bore makes. And those slim profile rounds tend to not catch as much as say kind of a bigger faced 40 or 45 caliber. Uh, that, that typically is going to catch more muscle and more bone and slow down quicker. Um, and I don't think a lot of shooters know that. That part of the video was very eye-opening for me, seeing how many rounds Clay could get out of that nine versus when he picked up the 44. Because, you know, you, you hear all the time about, like, well, the 44 is the minimum, you know, and and obviously there's there's lots of different schools of thought. But, yeah, seeing that he could get six rounds to one to two, it's like, well, you, that has to matter too, you know. To me, anyways, it made sense. Absolutely. And especially when the nine millimeters are very capable round to begin with. You know, if I only got one bullet to shoot a bear with, of course, I'm going to choose a 44 mag. But if we're in a situation where we're trying to get as much lead in the air as we possibly can, um, your nine millimeter and your 10 millimeters are going to be better. And um, to carry that attuned further, I think 10 millimeters is the best of both worlds if you chose to go the 10 mil route, um, you know, because you're getting the shot volume of a nine millimeter and you're getting increased power as well. Yeah. And that was, and, and I'll be very upfront and honest that the 10 millimeter was just a, another good excuse to buy a handgun. Um, you know, I have a nine, I have a 40, I have rounds that were capable. I carried my 40 last time, but that is something I do like about the, I have a full size Glock. Um, it's actually a lot of fun to shoot even in, in 10 millimeter. It's not super snappy. I mean, uh, even compared to like shooting the bear rounds out of my 40, it almost seems like I stay better on target with that 10 millimeter. Uh, but like to your point, Aaron, where you're a lot of people are wanting to get multi uses out of, out of a gun. So, you know, if you have a, you know, a nine millimeter that you can maybe carry or, or it's a little more enjoyable to shoot at the range. I think that's something to, to take into, into account too. So that's a good point. Yeah. Well, 10 mil is similar to a 40 technically, right? It is. It just has more case capacity, so you're getting kind of higher velocity, more powder, I assume. Yep, more okay. powder in there. That's that's what's giving you more velocity. So, um, and you can typically run bigger, uh, bigger grain loads in a forty. I think you can go up to two hundred or two twenty. I believe in a ten mil. So, uh, I personally, I haven't run a ten mil. I used to run a forty. 
Smith and Wesson for a long time. But as Cody pointed out, one of the worst things about the 40 is just how snappy um, the pistol is. And when you're trying to take quick follow-up shots, that kind of snappiness is, is not what you want. Uh, whereas like the smoother uh, 9mm and 10mm really allows you to, to catch that second front sight picture and continue engaging whatever you're trying to shoot at. Yeah, that was that was definitely something I I noticed right away too, which which I think you know will be a good thing. Um, you mentioned holsters. Do you have you always ran that Rasco? Is that kind of your go to? No, I actually ran. It, it is now, but okay. I ran a Kenai chest holster for a while. Okay. Um, yeah, I think Gunfighters Inc. made that one. Yep. And you know, I wore that in Alaska when we were running into bears on a caribou hunt and. And we never really had any encounters with them. They were all at distance, but it was great to have that chest holster capability when we were fishing and whatnot. So, um, and I've run a, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the other one. I, I believe it was another Gunfighters Inc. kind of outside the waist belt holster that I ran for quite a while on my hip um, before I switched to to the Rasco Kydex holster that I Rasco Kydex holster that I run now. Um, you mentioned Alaska, uh, something that always kind of came up uh, as I was doing my research, you know, a couple of years ago, and then an out, and then again uh, this year, is guys talking about, you know, well, it's a different, it's a different thing if you're going to Alaska with those bears versus the bears we have here in the states. I mean, how do you kind of look at that? Is, is sure. it one of the same? Do you look at Alaska any differently as far as what you're doing, what you're carrying, that kind of thing? Yeah, I do. Uh, but I have my 300 wind mag on me pretty much the bulk of the time that we were hunting caribou. And the few times that I didn't was when we were fishing. And honestly, I'm not going to backstrap my <laughs> my 300 wind mag to go fishing. And so I, I would rather have something that's more comfortable that can still protect me. Uh, and there was an Alaskan fly fisherman that actually killed a, a grizzly bear a couple of years ago with a nine millimeter when it came charging across the river at him. I don't have that article in front of me, but, um, you know, they are bigger bears, you know, denser bone, denser muscle and all that. But um, it just depends on the situation. So I think if I could have one round to defeat a bear and that was the round I had to choose, it'd probably be from a forty-five seventy. I think that's one of the best bear cartridges out there yeah that's interesting i wanted to kind of get your take because like i said you read some of the stuff and you don't know you know do these guys even have any experience with either and so you spending some time in alaska i was kind of curious you know what your thoughts were so but that that makes sense especially caribou hunting with a rifle you know little different game too totally totally you know i've never archery hunted in alaska but uh, I bet I would quickly change my tune about what I was carrying. So, um, yeah, that's fair, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but in that particular case, it just made the most sense to, to just have my, my nine millimeter with the hard cast in there when we were fly fishing or, uh, excuse me, real fishing there in the river. So, and we were able to see, we were hunting barren ground caribou too. So it wasn't kind of like an enclosed terrain like in willows where you could come across a bear that's five feet away. Um, we could, we would be able to see him coming from quite a ways away. Situation kind of dictates again, which I think people are seeing is kind of a common thing when it comes to bears. Absolutely. So, uh, when it comes to pistols, um, 
you know, obviously with, with your background and you being an instructor, what are some things, uh, and I think this is something that you guys did a really good job with on the video too, but what are some things that people can kind of do once they've decided, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a pistol or I have a pistol and I'm going to carry it. I'm going to be carrying it. What are some things, some drills, what can people be doing to prepare and make sure that they are kind of efficient with that round when they go to the field? Yeah. You know, the first thing Cody that uh, I often find myself advising people on is, you know, are you wanting to go with a slide locking auto loading pistol or are you wanting to go with a wheel gun, like a revolver, you know, figuring out what is more comfortable for you. Um, and, and then moving from there and understanding the differences because auto loaders are incredibly reliable. Now they're a lot more reliable than they were even 10 years ago. Um, but they can be taken out of battery and by out of battery, I mean like the slide can be pushed forward or backward and you kind of run into a mushy trigger and you got to know how to clear that out. And that is not necessarily a position you'd want to be in if a bear's charging you. Um, whereas wheel guns, you know, revolvers are incredibly reliable, you know, and if you, if the gun doesn't fire, you just keep pulling the trigger and letting that wheel go around. So, um, but ammo so good and, and handguns are so reliable now that I wouldn't say that revolvers are more reliable than auto loaders now. So as moving far, into, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say just, just before you move forward is that mushy trigger that you talked about. So like I said, I've never owned a handgun. Like, is that something you can practice? Like, can you, can you force so, your gun into a situation that you have to get it out of? Yeah. So like in a slide locking, uh, auto loader, if you were to pull the gun out of battery where you had a mushy trigger, all you're doing is smacking the bottom of the magazine well to ensure that the, the magazine's inserted properly. And then you're racking the slide all the way back. So you're kicking that round out. Um, so you're clearing the obstruction and then letting the slide go forward and, and chamber a fresh round. Oh, okay. So much simpler than yeah. what I thought it might be. Well, and it's a, it's effectively the same thing as if you didn't have a round in the chamber and you pulled the trigger and it dry fired on you, you'd hit the magazine and you would rack the slide back. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the same you. process. Yep. So we, in the military, we called it slap rack bang. So, but. <laughs> catchy. It's catchy. Um, yeah. Yep. So. You know, if you're an underperforming high school student like I was, then it's easy to pick up on. <laughs> but yeah, pretty straightforward. But um, to to answer your question, Cody, after um, I'll get off my soapbox about auto loaders versus revolvers, um, building good fundamentals is always first in my mind when it comes to preparing yourself with a pistol and. You want to learn proper grip. You want to learn proper sight alignment. You want to learn proper trigger pull. It's important to understand that if the sights are aligned, when you break the shot, you're going to hit what you're aiming at. So um, those things are incredibly important. You know, when you're talking about calibers like like a 40 cal that tends to be pretty poppy or like a, a 44 mag that has so much recoil, picking up that second sight picture and aligning your sights is incredibly hard when you only have two and a half seconds. So, um, but proper grip, proper side alignment and proper trigger pull, these will give you a good platform to launch off of, um, YouTube and, and many other resources online are great to learn all these things. I, of course, as a firearms instructor, I would always encourage somebody to go get training, um, 
spend twice as much on training as you do on your actual firearms. So uh, then you can start applying these things under stress. Uh, you can add movement into your training um, to, to create more of a stressful environment. Um, and then you can bring your gear in and get more comfortable in these shooting positions. So, and like we did with clay, once we get there, then you can add in multiple target drills uh, under time stress so that you can understand site acquisition and hopefully get good enough to do what I call point shooting, where you're, you're not actually even looking at your sights when you're engaging something. You're kind of looking over them. So that would be an advanced step in, a, in, in pistol shooting, but you would eventually get there with enough practice. So something that I kind of changed right away after watching the video that you guys did was the um, kind of at the beginning where you talked about the offhand. Like, I think I just always kind of like just naturally probably let it hang to my hip. I don't, I kind of had to think about like, where's my left hand when I'm doing, you know, some of this stuff, but I thought that part was really good and it made a lot of sense, you know, and, and maybe you want to talk about that a little bit now again too, but, but kind of the, some of the things that you were talking about that you can do when you have that kind of offhand up and engaged a little bit. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, when I was mentioning prepping your non-shooting hand, or yes. your non-dominant hand. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So uh, effectively, you're putting yourself in a position in a training environment that you can mimic under stress in a real world situation. And if a person is coming at you or there's, say, brush in your way or what have you, it's good to get in the habit of at least utilizing your non-dominant hand for something. You know, you want to get it in the fight however you can. And so when I mentioned that to Clay, I was essentially, it was a variation off of a, a tactical position that you would take to create distance between you and somebody else while you're drawing your pistol. And it can also be utilized in, you know, in a backcountry situation where you may have stuff in front of you, or you maybe need to stabilize yourself. Uh, it's better to train in that situation. So that it's there for you when you need it. Yeah, that part, that part made a lot of sense. Uh, something else I think I need to get better about doing. Um, you know, when, when we went in 2019, I prepped quite a bit, you know, I shot my gun, I, I worked on some, you know, some drill work and that kind of thing, but something I I'm trying to be better about this time around is doing it with all my gear on, you know, I wear my holster on my hip belt, but it was always during the summer. It's August, it's 80, 90 degrees. I have my pack on and shorts and, you know, maybe my boots, but I don't have a jacket. I don't have my bino harness. So trying to get better about that and put some more realism into the, into the training and the situations. I thought that was, that was a, a very good point too. And something I probably neglected a little bit. Sure. Sure. And we'll always default to our lowest level of training. So, um, pressure does really weird things to people. I've seen it in a lot of different training environments. So if you're constantly building good fundamentals, they will be there for you if you need them, if, and when you need them. Um, so if you're constantly practicing kind of with your hand down at your side, that's exactly what you're going to default to. Um, if you ever had to, to pull your pistol out for some reason, but if you're training in a position where you're, you're non dot or your non-firing hand is, is up and in front of you and you're utilizing it in a way that's going to aid you, it'll be there for you. So kind of a practice, how you plan to play. Exactly. And the other thing that that hand is doing is now 
like I had demonstrated with Clay's, it's our number three position when we're drawing and firing and presenting our weapon on target is its economy of motion. Now that support hand is there in front of you to press the gun out on target as opposed to you having to bring it up and meeting the firearm. And some people may scoff at, at that, you know, that the time that it would take to do that, but I can guarantee you that under pressure, um, economy of motion is incredibly important. So that was one of the things I thought about initially when I started kind of thinking like, where is my non-dominant hand, especially once you start talking about in the video, uh, kind of the time and how quickly this happens, you know, it's like, yeah, it makes a lot more sense to have my hand kind of up in that area. Like you said, for clearing obstructions, you know, uh, things coming at you. But yeah, it makes a lot more sense that it's up there and kind of ready to marry into my gun hand versus having it down at my side. So, um, yeah, that was a big, big light bulb moment for me, for sure. Yeah, you know, and there was, um, I think that video has got like over a million views on YouTube now. And there's hundreds of comments. And one night I just kind of started going through the comments and, and reading some of the feedback. And, you know, I, I always love feedback from my students in my classes because it's what it, it's what drives the classes. Honestly, it's how you make them better. But, you know, some of the some of the comments in there were saying like, oh, you would never put your hand up because it's not going to stop a grizzly bear if he's already on top of you. And, you know, it's like that wasn't the purpose of you. This, this guy is also still blue place. today. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was I was just cracking up. You know, my wife looks over at me and she's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just reading the comments here. So, but uh, yeah, it was cracking me up. I'm like, I, I fully understand that that my left hand is not going to stop an 800 pound grizzly bears charge <laughs> so yeah but, it's kind of dumbfounding that someone took the time out of their day to make that comment i mean you bet it, as yeah. if you're gonna yeah. stiff arm it right yeah derrick henry i should have wrote him back and just thanked him for like giving me a good belly laugh for a little while <laughs> but yeah that's funny no i i like that video a lot i know i texted a few people about it i just like it was so concise I thought it was well done. Um, it, it was very good. I know when I, and you know, just seeing the thumbnail and obviously I follow along with the mediator stuff and kind of seeing what it was like, definitely grabbed my interest right away. Um, but then, yeah, the video was awesome. And then, uh, found your account on Instagram and I'm like, man, I'd really like to talk to Jake some more because I thought that, I thought that video was super well done. Yeah. I appreciate that. Clay was, uh, Clay was incredibly fun to work with. The whole mediator team was, was a blast to work with. So, um, we had a lot of fun, especially off camera, because uh, Clay had this uh, this idea of of this John Wayne pistol shooter, you know, when he showed up and and he was almost there by the end of it. If I just had another hour with him, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but we had a lot of fun, and you know, I got a lot of good feedback as well with um, uh, kind of the moving ball drill that we did at the end there, and. Um, you know, when I talked about point shooting and your progression with, with handguns, that is effectively um, what you would need to do in that position because that object is coming at you so fast and it's not coming at you in a linear fashion. It's kind of bouncing around. You don't really have time to acquire your sights, so to speak, like you would if you were slow firing. What you're doing is you're it would like shotgun shooting. Your brain is subconsciously lining up your sights on the target. So 
that drill is fantastic for point shooting and uh, you're not going to have the time to align your sights per se if a bear is coming at you you know i've never physically been charged by one but i can guarantee you that i'm not my brain's not going to be thinking about acquiring a, my front sight post you know so um i'm going to want to just be getting as much lead in the air as i can so that that drill was fantastic and i know clay really enjoyed that yeah that's a good analogy i think about like wing shooting you know like you said it's not mm-hmm. like you're it's not like you're lining everything up and finding the bird it's yeah I, I could see that. And that makes sense with that drill. I kind of wondered like, yeah, are you, are you, you know, like what's kind of the, the target acquisition, like what's the site picture like, but that, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So that pistol is becoming just an extension of your body. You know, if you need to do something with your right hand, you've done it so many times, you know how to reach for a cup and bring it to your face, right? Your, your pistol shooting should be no different. That, that subconscious movement um, should kind of, you should, uh, I guess, strive to have that same feeling with a handgun, especially if you're going to be operating in bear country. Almost similar to, like you said, wing shooting, or even, even trusting the float in an archery shot, trusting your pin float, letting, letting your, your fundamentals and the process and your practice take over. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we talk about it a lot with rifle shooting, letting the conscious become subconscious. So once you've kind of mastered the fundamentals of it, uh, everything should just flow. Kind of like when you got your training wheels off on your bike when you were younger and, and, you know, you never lose that feeling of, of once it all kind of connects. Kind of, kind of backing up a little bit as far as when you would carry bear spray handgun, as far as populations and the grizzly range go, and, and if you don't feel comfortable answering this question, that's cool. Like this is definitely a personal preference. Like where I'm hunting in Idaho, there are no confirmed reports of grizzlies in that mountain range, but one mountain range over one Valley over there are confirmed reports of grizzly sightings. Is there like a threshold for, for you or someone who's experienced that like when you carry, or is it really just, what makes you feel good and what makes you feel confident? Yeah. You know, I've been carrying a firearm for so long now that I almost feel kind of naked without one, regardless of the situation. Um, so I always have that option available to me. I always have my handgun on me, uh, when I'm, when I'm archery hunting it, you know, I used to not carry bear spray, but I do bring it as a backup, Mm -hmm. of course. But, um, from what I do know, I'm not a biologist, but from what I have learned about bears is they have an incredibly big territory. Right. So if there's bear attacks in just the next drainage or the next Valley or the next hunting district, um, you know, I've heard grizzly bears have territories up to like 200 square miles. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a very real possibility that, that you could run into a bear in the area that you're going to, even though there's never been a reported incident. So just, and just reached how many, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're good. You're good. How many people have come across bears and it's never been documented, right? That's a good point too. Yeah, someone always has to be the first. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Guess I'll I'll be ordering that that can of bear spray now. Well, you don't need to worry because you're going to be so proficient with a handgun by the time you go. I got a power to you. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) I'll let my wife so, know when we're done that uh, I'm going to make an investment for the family. 
see how yeah. that conversation yeah. goes. There you go. Um, but yeah, no, I, I have so much respect for grizzly bears. I would never, ever, I, regardless of how good I was with a handgun or bear spray or any of that, I would never underestimate anything that they're capable of. And I would never put myself in a position where I would have to harm a bear on purpose. Right. You know? So, yeah, no, the, the, the 200 mile range thing is something that I had forgotten about grizzly bears. And that's a, a wonderful point. I mean, I was carrying it regardless, mm-hmm. but just, you know, you mentioning that like 200 miles, I mean, I'm trying to do, do the, the, the route in my head, but that's what Bozeman to, to salmon probably. Yeah. Bozeman close to Bozeman to Missoula. You'd still be in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like 185 miles from Bozeman to Missoula, but, um, so we'll say Bozeman to Lolo, Montana, which is right on the border. Right. Right. Yeah, that's but, a big. Uh, that's a big range, man. And and yeah, and don't quote me on that. I remember reading that a while back, and I just know grizzly bears to be extremely territorial. So, yeah, no, it's good info. Really good. We probably don't need to keep you any longer, Jake. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I think it's been really thorough. I th- you know, I think uh, I know. I've I've learned a lot. I think Aaron's learned a lot as well. I'm sure the listeners will, but maybe to wrap up, what are your plans for the fall kind of look like this, this, uh, coming hunting season? Yeah. So I, uh, drew antelope. So we'll be hunting in Eastern Montana in October, uh, rifle hunting. And then, uh, I drew general tags for deer and elk. So I'll try to soak up as much of the archery season here in Montana in September as I can. Um, and then, uh, we'll probably head to North central Montana for mule deer somewhere around the end of October, early November. And then I have, uh, the only out of state tag that I drew this year was, I didn't draw it. It was over the counter, but I have a whitetail tag for Idaho in unit 11. So, um, are you doing any guiding or anything this fall? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be, I'll be guiding in September and October Okay, and hopefully in, into November. Yeah. It just depends on how much my current job allows me to, to get away. So, uh, but, um, I'll be guiding kind of up out of, uh, like out of central Montana for the most part for deer and elk and then, um, down the bitter road out of Florence. So. Man, you're involved in everything, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. My, my wife tells me I need to be home more and she's probably right, but yeah, she's very patient with me. That's pretty cool. You got a pretty pretty sweet fall plan it sounds like you're gonna be in the woods quite a bit so yeah yeah so um i don't know if they're as cool as your guys' plans though coming from pennsylvania and michigan all the way out to idaho and montana <laughs> yeah looking forward to it. it's gonna be fun it's never long enough but getting the, that seven eight days or whatever it's gonna be is gonna be a good time yeah yeah you bet so jake where can people find you can they follow along you know, uh, with your pistol stuff and, and kind of what you're doing. Yeah. So they can find my website at jjoutdoorsmt.com and then they can find me on Instagram. Uh, just my name is my handle. So Jake Jordan, a. is your, uh, is your guide service also associated with your, with your website? It's not Yeah, I work for a couple different outfitters. Oh, okay. Cool. Just, just as a contractor. Yep. 
All right. Well, thanks again, Jake. We appreciate you taking the time out of your night to uh, hop on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I can't thank you guys enough for having me on. So it's good to good to meet you and good to chat with you. And I hope you guys have a great fall. Yeah, absolutely. You as well. Good luck. Thanks, guys. All right, everybody. Jake Jordan A. And we'll catch you on the next one.